Welcome, everybody, to the Always Hope Podcast, a production of Willwood's Faith in Marriage. I'm your host, Dr. Mario Sacasa, and I pray that you're having an amazing 2020 so far. Well, on this show, I love receiving feedback from my listeners about potential future guests or even ideas that need to be covered that can help enrich your lives. Since the show is really for you, my listeners, to be able to help you in a way to integrate your faith and to be able to tackle the hard questions of life. And so one of the questions that has come up a couple times, I would say, has been the concept of self-forgiveness. And maybe it's because, I don't know, I find so much more anxiety in this culture and day and age, and people are much more perfectionistic than they used to be. And so I have found both in counseling and even in my own life, quite honestly, just the difficulties of letting go of mistakes or accepting failure or learning how to be kind and compassionate with oneself. So listening to this feedback, I decided that the best person that I could have this conversation with is Dr. Ev Worthington, Professor Emeritus at Virginia Commonwealth University. Dr. Worthington has over 30 years of experience, research experience on forgiveness, both forgiving others and in the process of self-forgiveness. So in today's episode, we dive into that process of self-forgiveness, as well as looking at the steps that you need to take if you're struggling with self-condemnation. Also, how to understand how self-compassion and self-empathy and and some of these kinder emotions uh, help you in the process of being able to forgive yourself. And then ultimately, we end the show by talking about the differences between forgiving others and forgiving yourself. Dr. Worthington comes with so much experience to this topic that it's really a gift that I had him on the show. And I pray that it is a blessing to you. I thought, honestly, this is the best way to start 2020. We're a couple weeks in already, and maybe, you know, your New Year's resolution has already gone out the window. And maybe you already need to practice a little bit of self-forgiveness. Or maybe your resolution is to learn how to be more compassionate and kind to yourself. And so hopefully this episode is a blessing to you. When the show is done, please don't forget to leave a rating or write a review on Apple Podcasts or even just tell your loved ones about the show. We just had the holidays and if you guys still like each other and you're spending a lot of time together, make a little reference to the show and tell them, hey, I listened to this amazing podcast that you should listen to too as well. You should listen to it as well. Anyways, whatever. Sorry, I'm <laughs> getting tangential. Enjoy the show, everybody. Dr. Everett Worthington, welcome to the Always Hope podcast. How are you doing this morning? I'm good and good to be with you, Mario, and also your listeners. Oh, well, thank you for joining us. This has been, as I mentioned in our email, uh, one of the topics that has been requested by my listeners and even in my counseling clients. A lot of people really struggle with the notion of self-forgiveness. And so I went straight to the expert. I was like, well, who can I talk to about this? I was like, I'm going to see if if Dr. Herbert Worthington's available. And graciously, you replied right back. And so I'm I'm, I'm very honored and humbled and and grateful to have this opportunity. I know you're a busy guy. And to make some time to to talk to me really is a truly amazing experience. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. So I guess the place to begin is certainly how do we define self-forgiveness? I think there's a lot of people that are confused by it in terms of like, am I just giving myself a pass? Am I, am I being too hard on myself? Like just, just, I guess we're going to have a whole conversation about it, but let's just kind of ease into this. Like Mm -hmm. in your research, in, in your experience, what, what have you seen as kind of a way to define self-forgiveness? I think one thing that's important is that when people struggle with self-forgiveness, most of the time, what they're struggling with is self-condemnation. 
So they're blaming themselves for something they did wrong, or maybe they're blaming themselves because they feel like they haven't measured up. So it's, it's maybe something wrongdoing or wrongbeing, we might say. So the, the psychological experience most people have is, is how do I deal with this self-condemnation? Self-forgiveness is one of the many ways that people can deal with self-condemnation. Uh, and so what we found is that uh, there, there are actually two components to um, what might be called genuine self-forgiveness or authentic self-forgiveness. One of those is to, to kind of seek to uh, restore the moral balance. Mm. So if I've done wrong or feel that I'm being wrong in some way, how do I, how do I restore that moral ba balance? And, and the other is how do I get a sense of peace and resolution from this? So those are the two uh, components for forgiving oneself. Mm. Um, we think, you know, get to the definition might be that uh, that we make a decision to treat ourselves more generously, to treat ourselves uh, better than we were treating ourselves. And then uh, that uh, may accompany or may lead to uh, a uh, feeling that I I experience an emotional change toward myself. So I think that's the way we understand it from the research that we've done. Now you said that it's really a response to self-condemnation. Now, you'd mentioned that there are lots of responses to self-condemnation. What are, what are some of the other responses that are healthy or even not healthy that we can choose or you know, fall into, I guess, you know, responding to self-condemnation? Well, one of those, one of the reasons that we define self-forgiveness as having these two components is that some people will just kind of let themselves off of the hook. Mm. So they just say, well, I, I've uh, you know, dealt with this too long. I'm going to let myself off, give myself a free pass. That's not always the best. Uh, we can kind of see that. I, I, I encountered this at one point when I was reading a book about um, South Africa, and it was written by a woman named Pumla Gabodo Medikizela, wow. uh, which is a mouthful. But, yeah, yeah, uh, for us, English speakers, that's a mouthful. For her, it's probably like right. Bob Smith or something. It just rolls, <laughs> it just rolls off the tongue. Uh, but she was a commissioner of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, mm -hmm. and she was charged with interviewing a man who had been one of the chief um, pol police enforcers of the apartheid regime. And his name was uh, Eugene uh, de Kock. So she interviewed him about 42 times. He, he had killed over 100 people for political reasons and then some for personal reasons. And as I was reading that book, I, I had this sudden flash about what if he walked into my counseling room and said, you know, I've done a lot of bad things in my life, but I've decided to forgive myself. Mm. There would be a long, awkward pause. And then I would say, I don't think you can do that. Right. You, know, you can't just let yourself off of the hook. 
So there have to be things that we do to restore that moral balance. And, you know, the first of these is going to be going to God. And uh, a lot of people, you know, one of the ways people deal with self-condemnation, they go to God. They get a sense that God forgives me. I've repented of these things. I've confessed these and and I accept the forgiveness that God offers. Um, but there are other things that people can do. They can um, kind of accept uh, themselves. Um, they can do something to, you know, to right the moral wrongs. Mm-hmm. And then instead of forgiving themselves, they they just accept themselves. So uh, if if we've been involved in uh, psychotherapies, we know about ACT, uh, acceptance and commitment therapy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the whole idea is change what you can change and accept what you can't change. And right. so just acceptance is, is a way that people can deal with the self-condemnation. It's not really forgiving, but it's it's accepting and it moves people on past things. Uh, people can also really kind of do acts of contrition mm-hmm. and get a sense of relief. Uh, they're, they're really focusing on that moral, that restoration of morality end of things. And sometimes they can feel like, oh, I've, I've done penance. I've done, I've done my act of contrition. And so I can let this go. So all of those are different ways that people can successfully or not so successfully try to deal with the self-condemnation that they experience. Yeah, in, in healthy ways, I guess, not moving into addictions. We'll talk about that in a little bit later. But it, it sounds like if I'm hearing this right, then with self-forgiveness, it really requires these two components of some type of restitution or or um penance or, or making up for for the 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 moral uh, loss or um forget exactly how you said that and then the second piece was then is the is then the reconciliation with yourself kind of that piece of how do i find peace with myself and saying that i've done enough to make up for that moral offense like the example you spoke about with the the the, the gentleman from south africa to just say i you know well hey i did a couple bad things in my life and move on from it that would be disastrous. You would be like, no, you, you like there has to be something, a justice demands some type of you know restitution for this. You can't just get yourself off the hook and be like, oh, well, life moves on. I mean, that's that. But then simultaneously, the other side as well, where people who maybe have an overly scrupulous mentality and view everything with this intense moral lens that everything becomes problematic, that can they can never get past feeling like they've done enough to make up for whatever was lost that when we're speaking about self-forgiveness again, we're, we're trying to find the balance and hold attention between both of these. Is, is that correct? Yeah, that's, that's right. And in dealing with the moral end of things, uh, you know, sometimes it, it really doesn't boil down to a lot of effort and contrition and suffering. You know, it may be as simple as taking things to God and just receiving the gift that we already have been given. Mm-hmm. And uh, and for many people, you know, that frees them up to, to an extent that they can then, you know, feel a peaceful uh, life. 
Amen. Now, in my, in my counseling work, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I've, I've seen self-forgiveness kind of hit the gamut of, of issues. I've seen uh, addicts uh, who keep falling and keep, keep going back to their addiction of choice. I work a lot with, with men who have struggled with pornography and sex addiction and, and continue falling back to, to that behavior. And they can't forgive themselves every time that they, that they fall. Um, I've seen, as I mentioned, overly scrupulous kind of perfectionists who, who their anxiety kind of gets raised up and they're unable to, to, to really kind of move past whatever that, that moral feeling is. But I've also seen uh, older individuals who, who have regretted not pushing through certain fears in their life and, and not actualizing their potential. So I know we're kind of hitting the gamut of, of people and, and personality types and things, but where would you, what would you recommend as like a first step for somebody who is really struggling with the capacity to forgive themselves? Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, we've created a, a, a method to help people forgive themselves. There are many ways that people can forgive. A therapeutic method is, is just a guided way through uh, the experience. But usually what we recommend as a first step is to get right with what people hold to be sacred. Mm. So if a person is a Christian, you know, that's get right with God in some way. That, that doesn't totally take care of things because there were consequences in the world of, of what we've done. But other people who may not even believe in God, you know, they may say, well, I, I did a crime against humanity. Mm -hmm. I did a crime against nature. Uh, so whatever they hold to be sacred, they have to restore themselves, you know, by doing whatever is you, know, you might say faith appropriate for whatever faith they hold. So, you know, as a Christian myself, you know, I think it's like, you know, go to God, um, you know, be uh, mindful of God's mercy and God's grace. And, uh, and, 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 you know, that divine forgiveness is available to people. But I also have worked uh, in a secular setting my entire professional career. And so I've seen many, many people who don't have the, that Christian faith perspective, and but they do have a faith perspective of some kind, even if it's a kind of a secular faith. I think that's like a good first step because it, it kind of sets the, the canopy, the, the umbrella of meaning over uh, the, everything else that they do. What's coming to my mind right now is the movie The Mission. Have you seen that movie? It's an older I, film yeah. uh, with Robert De Niro and uh, Jeremy Irons. Uh, yeah. For the listeners who don't know, it's the it's a beautiful, beautiful movie about uh, missionaries in uh, South America and having to contend with the realities of of mission missionary work to the natives, while also the corruption uh, of the, the the church as well in that time. Uh, but the scene that I'm thinking about right now in the context of our conversation is Robert De Niro is this kind of this conquistador young character who his job is not to mission or to save the, the the natives, but he really he's going in to kill them and and to take over their lands and, you know, to conquer them. And well, he has this profound conversion through a series of events in the movie. And he comes to this point that he really has to he acknowledges his 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 sinfulness towards these people. And he goes to confession to the priest. 
And then he does this the, the beautiful journey as he's having this conversion from being a conquistador now to being a, a brother. Uh, he, after his confession, he takes like his armor or something, if I remember, and his weapons, and he puts it like in this like rucksack or this rope sack that he then puts onto his back and he carries it up the waterfall as they're heading up to the village of where these natives live. And everybody, you know, he's, he's walking up this thing and carrying this huge sack and the priests and the brothers are like, man, you know how much is too much? Like, let it go, basically. Let it go. You've, you've held on to your sin. This is his bone. This is his way of trying to make sense of, of, uh, of the moral question, like you said earlier. This is his way of trying to, to make some sort of restitution or reparation for his offense. Well, finally, he gets up to the top of the waterfall and he's still holding on to this thing. And it's not until like the little boy from the village comes over and cuts the thing off and then throws it. And that scene to me, I mean, it, it moves me. I've seen the movie a dozen times and it moves me every time because it just, that little boy, that's grace. You know, like it's, it's, we don't deserve to some degree the forgiveness that God wants to give to us. And it becomes actualized in, in that movie in a, in a very particular way. So I think, you know, I don't know, what are your thoughts as I throw that out there? Well, I, I love that, uh, that scene. That's, I think, one of the best scenes, the best 10 minutes of movie cinema that I've ever seen. Uh, and the, the striking part is he goes through all of this, these acts of contrition and repentance of dragging that armor up Iguazu Falls. And, and he, at the end, he falls to his knees and he's weeping because he realizes that I can't do it myself. I, I, it failed. And then when the, the young warrior cuts the, the rope and, and the heavy weight that he's been bearing is washed away down the falls, he's so relieved and changed and transformed because that which he could not do himself, you know, the, the love of and forgiveness of the people that he had harmed really made the difference for him. So uh, I think this really speaks to how important it is to, uh, if possible, engage in a productive way with people that we've harmed and make amends in some way. You know, sometimes people just can't get past the harm that's been done. Um, And we can, you know, we don't need that, but it makes it a lot easier if they're able to forgive. So, so that's kind of, really a second step in this journey to forgiveness. You seek forgiveness from God to be open to what's given, but also you, you seek to make things right with whoever has been uh, harmed as a result of my, of my wrongdoing or wrong being. And, uh, and that's, that's very important. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's all a part of the 12 steps right there, you know, to, to the degree that it's helpful to the person also, you know, not mm-hmm. just for me to kind of get off my, my own sense of guilt, but really trying to make reparations and then giving freedom for the individual if, you've, if there's been significant hurt. Right. Um, so, okay. So gently here, we're, we're encouraging people to start by acknowledging certainly the sin or the, the transgression. Um, it, recognizing grace is needed and to try to receive that and then work towards making some type of restitution uh, towards the offense 
or to the to the person who's been offended by the sin. And I, I think that's <clears throat> it's not always possible. You know? <laughs> so, you know, if you know if you've had an accident and hurt somebody or kill somebody, you can't, they can't always be restored back to the way that they were. But there are still ways that I can pay it forward, that I can do things that benefit others, even though I can't restore what the locusts have, you know, eaten up, I, I can, uh, I can maybe help somebody else go through the process without as much pain or, or avoid the negative uh, things all, that I've done altogether. Now, what if somebody, I'm thinking right now, like people probably listen to a conversation and they're like, yeah, yeah, that's great guys. Uh, but, uh, but you don't know what I've done, you know, and you don't know how bad I am as a person. And the rumination of self-criticism, of shame, of that self-condemnation is just really loud. And in any attempt to move against it is just this accusation. Um, what, what, what encouragement would you offer to somebody who's, who's in that where the ruminations are just so, so loud that they can't even make that first step? Well, uh, I, I think, um, you know, we treat as kind of the third step of dealing with rumination. So, you know, we've got go to God, you know, try to make amends with the people who have been directly affected by my wrongdoing or, or things that I may have done. But, deal, you know, we, we all kind of ruminate if if we're struggling with self-condemnation. So rumination is repeatedly playing over and over in the late show of the mind, uh, the negativity. So, you know, thinking positive thoughts or planning ahead what I'm going to do, that's not really rumination, but rumination is like those negative tapes that we play. And, you know, psychologists have some things that, that they recommend that people can do to deal with rumination. Um, we, of course, know that, you know, from a Christian standpoint, I can relinquish this to God. Uh, I also know that that's something that has to be done again and again and again. It's not like I can say, you know, Lord, take this rumination away and expect that well, I'll never ruminate again. You know, part of being human is uh, <laughs> we have bad things happen and we do bad things and we think about them. And so, so, but, you know, from a psychological standpoint, uh, it, what we know doesn't work very well is to try some kind of cognitive behavioral strategy of I'm going to control my thoughts. I've got to stop these negative thoughts. If I don't stop these negative thoughts, things are I'm just playing the negative thoughts again and again when I do that. So mostly rumination is going to to be taken care of more by positively redirecting where you're going so that you can you know, cut short the rumination when it's happening or so that you can direct yourself in a positive way when you know you're about to face a situation that triggers off a lot of rumination. So, so often that, 
the easiest way to do that is think ahead, you know, to just kind of analyze. And this is that positive, it's not rumination, but positive planning where I, I think, well, these are the things that I usually, that usually trigger off the rumination and maybe it's being alone on the weekend and you know or it being late at night or you know people have their own triggers and so i identify the triggers and then identify well what am i going to do practically that can keep me from just walking down that road and wallowing in my negativity which i think we've all been in that situation where we just find ourselves thinking negatively and going, my goodness, why am I doing this? I know better than this, but I can't seem to stop it. But planning ahead, you know, is certainly one way to, to deal with the rumination. You've said a couple of great things here about it. One is um, awareness that you can't outreason it. Um, you can't outthink bad thoughts. And the way I like to think of it is that like, I mean, there's, there's a certain element of the rumination that is it's, its own kind of self-contained logic, uh, which may not even be fully logical, but you, so you can't out reason something that, that, that is inherently unreasonable, like unreasonable. And so to attack it, you have to attack it differently. And I think that's what you said is to recognize that like you, as soon as the thoughts start moving in that direction, you almost have, you have to let it go and you have to recognize like, I, like as tempting as it is to step into that that shame cycle or that that rumination of the past or that negativity, I have to I have to let that go and redirect my thoughts to something else, um, or cultivate another memory, or bring to mind something else, or a mindfulness exercise to center yourself again and and, and incorporating some step of meditation. That's one. Um, the second thing is you said kind of plan for it. recognize that in humility that there's going to be triggering moments there's going to be circumstances where the rumination is is going to uh, is probably going to be triggered you know nine out of ten times so how do you avoid them if if possible or plan for them if necessary the other thing that I would add and and I don't know I'll take your insight on this to go deeper here but then even asking kind of like well, is there a self, almost like in this kind of convoluted way, does the rumination have like a self-protective mechanism? You know, is the beating yourself up with the past, is it serving some type of function in your life? And as convoluted as that may sound, there's a reason why you still do it. <laughs> and what's that reason? And, and if you, that's the work of psychotherapy, that's the work of counseling. And mm -hmm. if you can, if you can come to understand what it is that, 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 what positive, I hate to say, you know, quote unquote, positive role that that's playing in your life, if you could understand what that is, whatever defense mechanism or survival mechanism or whatever it is that's being activated in that ruminating thought, then maybe there's a way of being able to, to translate that towards something that will actually help you move forward in life. Yeah, I, I, I think that uh, is very true. And, and I think it is often, uh, and because we're, we're so enmeshed in these thoughts, it, it is often more helpful to process those with somebody you trust, you know, whether that's a, a therapist or a counselor or, or whether it's a pastor or whether it's a, um, you know, just a, a mate that you have that you, you trust. So, you know, but understanding why I'm doing this is certainly, it gives me a different level of ways to, 
trying to deal with the rumination without just getting, you know, swept along by the negativity. Right. Um, so back to then self-forgiveness, there's a lot of research now. I know Brene Brown's work has been very popularized and she quotes often Kristen Neff's work with regards to self-compassion and, and finding the antidote to, at least Brene Brown's work is the antidote to shame is, is empathy and having that self-empathy, again, that self-compassion. How do those themes and ideas and concepts connect with your research with self-forgiveness? <laughs> well, Forgiveness in general, whether it's forgiving other people or uh, myself, uh, really the emotional forgiveness involves um, <clears throat> replacing negative, unforgiving emotions like resentment, bitterness toward, you know, why, why did I do this? Uh, hate, self-hate, self-blame, replacing those negative emotions with one of for more positive emotions like empathy for myself, you know, understand what would I do if somebody else had done what I did? I, I wouldn't continue to beat them up, you know, so can I be empathic toward myself? Sympathy, you know, so maybe, you know, uh, uh, sympathy is is like, Wanting to help somebody in need, if I see that I am in need, can I be sympathetic toward myself? Compassion. This is where Kristen Neff's work of self-compassion uh, comes in. So can I be compassionate, which is, you know, feeling what the person, you know, uh, being sorry for what the person did and um, wishing to help them. So compassion is sympathy with work boots, basically. Hmm. And, a- and then love, you know, can I love myself in a way that's not a narcissistic love, but a, a way that where I could say, well, if I looked at a brother or even an enemy who did this, you know, I want to practice what what Jesus taught, which is to love your enemy, love your neighbor, love, you know, the people who are close to you. So can I use that non-possessive, agape, altruistic love and then say, well, if I could do that with another person, can't I do that with myself? So... <clears throat> I think that, uh, you know, self-compassion is one of the ways that we can, you know, kind of applying self-compassion is one of the ways that we can try to come to a sense of self-forgiveness. It's not the only way. We have options uh, that are more uh, different emotional options than uh, than just self-compassion. And I think, I think, uh, the thing that's unique about the Christian approach is the love, mm. you know, because self-compassion, where I, I feel compassion, I want to help myself. Okay, that's one thing. But to be able to say, if this were an enemy and Jesus calls me to love my enemies, can't I love myself? Mm. You know, and that's a unique Christian calling uh, that the world usually doesn't uh, really go to as the first place they go. 
Yeah. And I would say probably people can say no. Some people have a harder time loving themselves. Or even as we kind of look at these various, these ruminating thoughts, you know, how to be, um, not that we want to differentiate or kind of make all these distinctions in the self. I, sometimes I struggle with the, the various parts of self, but like being, being loving, then that part of you that that's what I was trying to say earlier, that is beating yourself up and saying, okay, well, like how, if that's the enemy, what, what would Jesus say to, th- to this thought? Like, if this is the enemy, how would Jesus approach, you know, healing this person or healing this thought and then applying that to, to, to the self um, I, I think is, is certainly kind of an option here. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Always So podcast with me, Dr. Mario Sacasa. I just want to take a quick break from my conversation with Dr. Worthington to invite you to check us out at faithandmarriage.org. We have a number of marriage retreats throughout 2020 that are already listed on the website that we would love to be able to have you come to join us, as well as other speaking engagements from myself, Dr. Mario, or Jason Angelette. And we would be happy to come to give a lecture on faith or on marriage at your parish or in your community in some way. To find out more about how to book us for an event, check us out at faithandmarriage.org. Now, you've mentioned already kind of emotional forgiveness, emotional self-forgiveness. Are you hinting at kind of a level between or distinction between emotional self-forgiveness and more of a cognitive self-forgiveness? Or, or well, no? I don't, yeah, I don't think of it as cognitive self-forgiveness. We call it decisional. <laughs> okay. But, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of the layperson idea of a decision is that you sit down and you consciously reason through something. And because of these really good reasons, you come out and make a decision by will. That's not the way that psychologists tend to think of it. So uh, psychologists think of uh, kind of uh, decisions as more intuitive and more, you know, as a result of things that happen in my body and things that, you know, I am not really aware of. And we tend to come up with reasons for what we did actually after we made the decision. So decision is, is usually, you know, a, a decision to forgive myself is usually motivated by other things like I see that the other person has forgiven me, like in, uh, in the, the mission. Mm-hmm. You know, when uh, the Nero character sees that the Guarani people have forgiven him, even though he's carried a bunch of them away in slavery. Now, all of a sudden, he can forgive himself. He didn't sit and reason that out. Mm. He responded to the situation emotionally and intuitively and made a decision. And later, he can come up with reasons that are going to keep him in a way of forgiving himself. So the reasons that we come up with often are ways that we use to maintain our our belief, not ways that we practice ahead of time to get to the to the belief. So 
uh, I mean, it's just a, a different way of looking at cognition in, uh, you know, in an experimental psychology way, not a, not a therapy way. So th- therapists, you know, have a program that they help people work through. And often one way that cognitive behavioral therapists do that is to help people consciously understand that if I change my thoughts, it can change my behaviors and my emotion. So they understand that cognitive paradigm. And then you get them to practice again and again doing that. Basically, what we're doing is we're getting them to do something that is unnatural. And uh, and because it's unnatural, it can have a therapeutic effect because it's kind of not the way that people usually act. And so it alerts people, it activates their part of their brain, the reticular activating system that makes them pay attention to things that they wouldn't have paid attention to before. So it can have a therapeutic effect, but basically it's not natural. Mm. And, uh, and it's hard to practice after you get out of the situation of going to therapy week after week. So what we want to have happen is we want people to make a decision to forgive themselves, you know, whether they do it through cognitive behavioral therapy or whether they do it by getting into what is intuitive, you know, seeing situations like someone forgiving me, like going to uh, a brother or sister in in Christ and confessing, you know, my, what I've done. Uh, All of those are situations that trigger off these intuitive, emotional cognition inside of us and not you know it can transform us just like the intentional therapy can transform us what i'm thinking right now is is the sense that like we almost need to like if we're struggling with self-forgiveness i guess i'm going back to this as the theme obviously for today's episode maybe even a place of prayer is praying for an experience then praying for that type of experience to to kind of ignite or kickstart that that thought process to to have that hit you more than just this cognitive kind of exercise, which again, those things are helpful. We've been talking about them in terms of not thought stopping or not engaging, but moving away and redirecting your thoughts. All those are exercises that can be helpful, but maybe even praying just for the grace to have an experience of, and whatever, I don't know what that would look like. That's obviously up to the Lord, but just being praying for that moment to be open to receive it should, should it come to you. I think another part of that, uh, that prayer, you know, figures in is not just praying for an experience, but praying for eyes to see and ears to hear when it happens. You know, I think of uh, David being confronted by Nathan. Uh, It's awesome. Yeah. so Nathan confronts him, David, you were the man and confronts him about the, the killing of Uriah and the, and the uh, infidelity. And immediately David says, I have sinned against God and humans. <laughs> well, you know, that is a giant leap. And I think that link is because God was at work on David, you know, through the Holy Spirit coming on David and he sees that right away and he it changes him and he's repentant from the beginning there it doesn't take away his problems no <laughs> you know the baby still Nathan, dies I mean yeah and Nathan t- 
tells about all these problems that are going to just cascade down. And we also see uh, in Psalm 51, Mm -hmm. uh, it says, Psalm 51, a Psalm of David after Nathan has confronted him. And what do we see? You know, create in me a clean heart, O God, restore right spirit within me, cast me not away from thy presence, purge me with hyssop. He is clearly still emotionally upset, even though God has forgiven him and God has allowed Nathan, a prophet of God, to tell him from this prophet of God's mouth that God has forgiven you. But he still has these emotional and behavioral and situational consequences that he's going to have to deal with. So, uh, <clears throat> I appreciate you bringing up that story. I, I, I love that story. I mean, because yeah, I think some, some people stop short of the Bathsheba incident and it's horrific. I mean, there's no apology for it. I mean, he, the, what he does is, is pretty bad. Um, to say the least, again, another understatement for the day, but but, you know, but the scripture refers to him as, as a man after God's own heart. And so even in his sinfulness, it's, it's that, that it, when Nathan challenges him, because even though he sinned and he's blinded, he was blinded by his sin for that moment, but he was still in his heart, a man seeking God's will. He got it. And he, he was humbled enough right. to recognize that like, oh, this is, this is me. I mean, he didn't cast Nathan out. He could have killed Nathan, you know, or whatever. He could have, hey, he's the king. He could have done whatever he wanted, you know, get out of here, whatever, what's wrong with you, you know, but he didn't in humility. He recognized that he had made the mistake. And then he immediately goes towards that, the, the, the restitution for that. He fasts, he puts sackcloth on and he doesn't shave. He, you know, he doesn't clean he does everything he can do for a time. And then when the baby dies, uh, and then he moves on and then he moves on. And I think that yeah. that, that balance right there. It's such a wonderful image for what we're speaking about, about recognizing that, like, listen, we're all trying our best here. We're all trying to do our best with what we got. And in some ways, you know, sometimes life, if I may be honest, sometimes it feels like we're just stumbling into darkness. And, you know, when, when Psalm says, be a light unto my path, man, you know, do you know what that means? That means sometimes it's pretty dark and all we got is a headlamp on and all we can see is right before us. And, it, and we're trying our best and we're going to stumble along the way it, it, and what it, it's again, not to be too easy on ourselves, but, but are we open to receive God's grace when it comes? Are we open to do what is being asked of us to really make the restitution for the offense? But then that third component that David does is, are we willing, are we ready and capable of really letting it go when it is time to let it go? Yeah, I, I think, uh, I, uh, a couple of years back, VCU had a, a common book that every year we have a common book that we try to read as a as a university. And the book that we read that year was Brian Stevenson's book on mercy. Hmm. Um, trying to remember what the exact name of the book is, but anyway, in the in kind of the really emotional high point of the book. He's on the phone with a, a man who is going to be executed. Um, and uh, so Brian Stevenson is a lawyer that tries to help people who are on death row to appeal. Mm. And uh, and so he's on the phone with this man who's going to be executed within the next hour. And the guy's crying and and he's saying, 
I am so sorry, not dying, but the man who's going to be executed says, I'm so sorry I've let you all down. I'm sorry for what I've done. And Brian is sitting in his office on the phone and he's weeping because he has been unable to do anything that can save this person. And he has this insight. And the insight is, he says, I realize that we are all not as bad as the worst thing we've done. Uh, We are not just a murderer. We are a person. We are not as good as the best thing we've done. So as a person is struggling with self-condemnation, you know, often because that's so emotionally present to them, they feel like that is the defining part of me. But, you know, Brian Stevenson's insight is, but that isn't all that you are. You are a child of God. You have things that you've done that are great, things that you will do that are great. You are not just a wrongdoer in this particular way. I think if we understand that in our heart, it really can help people to say, So I don't need to beat myself up so continually because I am more than the worst thing I've done. God have mercy. That's amazing. You you know, why why is it harder? I mean, if there's the literature, the research to support this, but it just seems, at least anecdotally in my experience in counseling, that it's easier for people to forgive others than it is to forgive themselves. Why is that? Yeah. I just looked at my bookshelf and saw that the title of that book is called Just Mercy. So if people are interested in that, it's a wonderful book. I'll I'll put a link to it in the show notes for people to access it easy. So, uh, you know, why is it sometimes harder to forgive myself than others? You know, first of all, there can't possibly be any research that addresses that because fair enough. Yes. They're, just not, they're not comparable. Uh, but you know, the things that, I mean, I think m- many people would agree that it's harder to forgive myself than others. And I think there are a couple of possible reasons. One is um, I have to do two things when I'm trying to forgive myself. One is I have to deal with my self condemnation you know, as a wrongdoer. And I'm also, by the way, the forgiver at the same time. So I've got these two roles that are kind of in conflict with each other in a way. So forgiving other people, I'm I'm just the one who was hurt. I only have one role to to forgive. Now, you know, a lot of interactions uh, end up both people hurting each other, but but in just forgiving another person, I have one role. I'm the victim. I want to forgive. Two roles in self-forgiveness. The other thing is, you know, no matter who it is that I'm trying to forgive, if I'm trying to forgive somebody else, I can get away from them. <laughs> Yes. And I don't care yes. who it is. It's true. It's very pragmatic. You can get away from them. Yes, it's true. But I cannot get away from myself. <laughs> so if I am laying in bed trying to go to sleep, 
mm, you know, those ruminations may come up if I'm alone. You know, I'm away from everybody else, but I'm not away from myself. So, so I think that forgiving oneself is really hard. It's a, it's a challenge. And, you know, if I don't think there's any way to test it, but I think the same level of hurt people hold on to a lot more with forgiving themselves. Now, there are individual differences. You know, there, there are personality issues. So some people are very prone to, to ruminate and look for the negative. And some people are per- perfectionistic. And, you know, there, so there are, there are personality differences that, that make it really hard to forgive yourself. Or some people, like a sociopath, it's really easy to forgive themselves because now they don't feel guilt. So, uh, you know, but, but those are a minority of, uh, you know, a, a large minority of people. Um, so there are individual differences that make it easier or harder to deal with self-condemnation. Just like to forgive other people, there are individual differences. Sure. Well, I, I don't know why, but just the, pragmatic reality of you can't escape yourself just kind of hit me. It's, it's, just, it's just, it's just, it's the truth. I mean, we talked about earlier about avoiding triggering situations. Well, if somebody you've had a difficulty with, you can avoid them. You, but if you are the wrongdoer yourself, you can't avoid yourself. And so you're forced to have to kind of deal with this. Mm-hmm. Um, if you may, um, in your books, you talk openly and I think in other lectures, you've, you've shared about your own journey here with forgiveness and how this has been not just a theoretical exercise, but an incredibly practical one. And, and in, in the book on self-forgiveness that you have moving forward, you, you articulate both um, having to forgive the, the murderer of, of your mom while also having to deal with your own uh, self-condemnation, if we can use that word, related to your, your brother's um, uh, suicide. And so is there, I know that's a bomb I'm dropping on the audience right now, but is there anything that you would want to share in terms of your own journey that could help the listener about how to, how you walk through both of these very intense emotional experiences uh, related to forgiving others and towards forgiving yourself? I think uh, trying to forgive the young man who murdered my mom um, was a huge event. Um, and, you know, was uh, very emotionally, in, you know, it, it just caught me and, and held me. But actually, I think God allowed me to forgive that young man fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think it's because I was so emotional that once I started down the road of thinking about what it must be like for this young man, it it uh, that emotion built up and it kind of counteracted the negative. My brother and my sister and myself all forgave that young man within a month. Uh, so, you know, it, it's because that's what Mama taught us to do, and you know, we we all came independently to the place of feeling like we were honoring Mama by you know by practicing what she had taught us about forgiveness. Um. But with the the other event, which was uh, about 10 years later, my brother and I were talking uh, one night having dinner together when I was down in Knoxville visiting. And he uh, said that um, he was having 
a lot of struggles. He couldn't get out of his mind the picture of discovering mom's body. Uh, he, he felt um, uh, that this would just kind of overtake him at times and dominate him. And he was depressed all the time. He would go in on Saturday and just shut the blinds in his room and stay in the dark for 12 hours. And and as a a therapist, I recognize that this is likely post-traumatic stress disorder. And so I, as gently as I could, tried to suggest that he uh, perhaps seek some therapy over this. Well, my dad didn't think much of therapists. And so you kind of poisoned, you know, Mike's mind toward that. And so Mike told me, I'm not going to any shrink. This is what he tells his shrink brother, which I'm sure gives you an insight into our relationship growing up. Sure. But but I persisted, and I said, well, you know, if if you've been 10 years and you haven't got over this, you're probably not going to get over it unless you do something different. He got really angry and pointed his finger at me and said, you know, I'm not going to any shrink, and I don't want to hear any more about it. So being the mature Christian therapist experienced in dealing with resistance that I was, did I use any of my professional training? No, not a moment. I responded like a hormone crazed 16-year-old responding to a challenge from his brother. And and my response was, well, whatever. Mm. You know, very mature. <laughs> and, and I didn't bring it up again. So, of course, what happens is in about three months, he committed suicide. And then all of that, that conversation came back. And I, I was really disappointed in myself. And, uh, you know, it struggled a lot. I happened to be at University of Cambridge at the time and, you know, on a visiting scholar position. And, and that gave me about four months, four and a half months to think through self-forgiveness. And to some degree, I was able to forgive myself by that really cognitive thinking through and put together the six steps to forgiving yourself, which we've talked about four of those already. We talked about go to God, you know, make amends to the person injured, uh, deal with the rumination, psychological problems, and then forgive yourself, make a decision or emotional forgiveness. We had two other steps, which are to accept yourself as a person flawed, you know, maybe more deeply than you thought, and then practice virtue. But I kind of had gotten through a lot of that, but not fully. It took me like two years, really, to come to the place where I felt like I had completely forgiven myself. And then, as a real surprise, it was about six months after I felt really kind of completely over this. I'd kind of gone through a ritual of, you know, demarking that, yes, I have forgiven by creating a kind of a pile of stones on the beach that were covered with sand and watching the waves come in and wash the sand away and uncover the the stones. And and I felt like that that was symbolic of, yeah, I finally washed away all this grit. Uh, But 
about six months after that, I was at a conference out in Los Angeles. And uh, there was a guest speaker named Maureen Miner, who's a psychoanalyst at um, at uh, University of Western Sydney. And it turned out that after the uh, meeting that night, after she had spoken, we, we came back to the hotel and they had placed all of the people in the conference on the same floor. So we, we rode up in the elevator together. And on the way up, she said, if I understand that uh, your brother died a couple of years ago, committed suicide, how are you doing with that? And my answer was, well, I'm, I'm fine. So this is just like a word to, to anybody who is listening. If you ever find yourself in a locked room... <laughs> With a psychoanalyst. Don't say you're just fine. Is that Don't say you're just fine, you know, because that just promotes that. Oh, really? uh, tell me more about that. And, and as I tried to kind of, you know, recover from that and, and tell her more about that, uh, I, I realized I had actually really become pretty cold toward God over the last uh, couple of years. And I could almost see myself in that out of body observing myself talking in a kind of a, you know, bitter way toward why did God let this happen? And I didn't want that. And so I was able to just go back to my room and start that relational repair with God uh, that night. And, uh, you know, then work to restore that relationship as much as as I could. So so that was an unexpected experience that I had uh, that I never even had crossed my mind. But I just had allowed myself instead of getting you know, shake your fist at God angry, I got more cold and distant angry and found myself reading psychology more than reading the Bible or reading Christian books and not thinking about God cutting down on the amount that I prayed to just kind of add meals and not not really at any other time. So anyway, that was a, a surprise to me, but uh you know, since then, I, I've seen other people that, you know, have experienced things that were different, but similar. It's amazing how God will use the psychoanalyst in an elevator to... Isn't that something? <laughs> he uses all things. Um, so the experience you talked about with the, the, the shells or the, the rocks in the water and kind of washing, I mean, obviously you said that was two years later. So it took two years to even get to the point where you felt like you could do this ritual. And then feel like, okay, I've made, I've made amends. I've come to peace with this. I'm fine. But even in that fineness, that there's the, um, the decisional forgiveness. And even in an emotional level, there's a first level of that. But what was still lacking from what I'm hearing in your story is a, a recognition that subconsciously you were really in self-protection mode. And if I could say, right, there, there was like, okay, well, I know that I'm angry at God, but I, you know what? Like this relationship has been shattered a little bit. Like there's after, it's easier to kind of read all the, the, the at least let me speak about myself. Like when I go through suffering, it's easier for me to have to say, I have to figure this out. I'm much more aligned with the psychological literature because the theology stuff, sometimes it can be a little too mysterious for me, especially when I'm hurting to this degree. And I'm kind of, okay, God, just kind of stay over there for a little bit. But then it took that moment for, in the elevator, it's beautiful to then 
open that up and remind yourself of the desire that was there. And again, you responded to it. I mean, again, you had the opportunity to to respond to the initiation and God in his timing recognizes how hard this experience was to guide along the way in for you to cooperate with that is, is, is really quite beautiful. Yeah, I would, uh, I think you gave me a lot more credit than I deserved. You know? <laughs> I really didn't think about it much at all. It just kind of, I just coasted away. You know, it's like, you know, I, I used to do a lot of couple counseling and it's like people would come in and say, we've coasted apart. Yeah. It wasn't that anything big happened. We just kind of lost the fire. And, and I, I felt the same way. And I, you know, I just felt blessed that God would really intervene to make me aware of that uh, through a Marine Miners, you know, just attentive listening in, in, a, in a psychoanalytic way. That's <laughs> <laughs> beautiful. I do, I do appreciate what she she did, and uh, you know, she as a sister in Christ just kind of loved me, you know, and that, that love allowed me to confront myself. Really, yeah. Amen. Thank you, thank you. Well, we said we've gone through four of the steps here. Then, then let's kind of nail down the last two. Uh, what is what is step five? Then you kind of threw it out there a few minutes ago, but what is, what is step five with regards to self forgiveness? Now, a lot of people struggle uh, to, to forgive themselves, and that is taking them through the first four steps. But then they find, well, I thought I'd forgiven this, and I have, but I'm still having a lot of emotional trouble. And the emotional trouble is I can't accept myself as a person who it would do such a thing as I did. So somebody who's abused his wife or a child, you know, might say, well, you know, I've sought forgiveness from my wife. I've sought forgiveness from a child. I've made amends. I've gone to programs. I've done all this stuff. But even though I feel that I've forgiven myself, I, I can't accept that I would be somebody who would hit his kid. So that self-acceptance, which I kind of half-jokingly usually say, this is what keeps psychotherapists in business, is <laughs> helping people accept themselves as someone flawed in a way or in a depth that they didn't think that they were flawed before. And so I, I think that's what I think of as the fifth step, and sometimes that can be an even longer process than just forgiving yourself. And then the last of those steps is is to practice virtue, if you will. That sounds grandiose, but basically, I don't want this to happen again. And I'm gonna I'm gonna try to do what I can to arrange my life in a way that I don't fall in a way that I have fallen in the past. So I think that's the the six steps that we identify in a workbook that helps people work through on their own the, the process of forgiving themselves if they wish to do that. Why is that last step important? Well, uh, for one thing, it's kind of the positive step forward. So, you know, up until then, I've been repairing damage, but it's just like if, if I injure myself in playing pickleball or tennis, 
you know, I, I have to go through a lot of healing, but I also want to strengthen my muscles and go through a rehab process to do physical things that will make it less likely that this that this happens in the future. So, so being healthy is not just getting over injury, but it's getting over injury and moving forward in a positive, virtuous way, moving toward God uh, instead of just saying, okay, I'm done. I'm, I'm going to be stationary here. Beautiful. Beautiful. Now, how does in these six steps connect with the REACH model that you've developed for forgiveness or where does the REACH model fit in within the six steps? Yeah, the, the fourth of these steps. So we've got go to God, make amends, you know, deal with the psychology. The fourth step is to make a decision to forgive and then reach emotional forgiveness. So the reach forgiveness model is five steps that R-E-A-C-H, Q, uh, people's memory. So R, and you can apply this to yourself. So that's where it comes in, the self-forgiveness. So recall the hurt. Empathize with myself or sympathize or feel compassion or love for myself. Give an altruistic gift of forgiveness. You know, when we're forgiving somebody else, they do not deserve forgiveness. This is a gift that we give. I realize I've messed up. You know, I've done wrong. I, you know, have fallen short of my own expectations. I don't deserve to be forgiven, but I can give that gift to myself just the same as I can give that gift to somebody else. Again, this is assuming I've taken responsible actions of going to God and, and making amends and, and those things. So so this is not just letting myself off the hook by giving myself a gift of, you know, uh, freedom. So REA, A is the altruistic gift. C, commit to the forgiveness I experience. And that often, you know, is do something that shows and that's that ritual that I did of that kind of self-ritual of piling up those rocks. That was a way to commit, not just to say in my mind, oh, I've forgiven myself, so I'll be fine now. But to say, I'm going to do something so that I remember physically that I have actually forgiven. And then H is the reason I do that commit step is so that I will H, hold on to that forgiveness whenever I doubt that I've forgiven. So we can apply this to other people. And we've done this all over the world. There have been 30 or more published randomized controlled trials of the reach forgiveness model. We're looking at it now at seven different sites in six countries around the world uh, and, uh, and doing uh, in very trauma-loaded places like Ukraine and Hong Kong and Colombia and, you know, uh, Indonesia, uh, South Africa, uh, Ghana, so uh, People's Republic of China. So, so that there have been a lot of studies of that that have shown that people can work through those that making a decision to forgive and five steps to reach forgiveness in groups and they can work through it on their own. It's self-help do-it-yourself uh, workbooks that we've created that take about six or seven hours. And the most recent one is just kind of two hours of the 
the best uh, interventions to try to help people uh, forgive quickly. And that's what we're doing that big test on in seven different sites. Amazing. Amazing that 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 model has uh, been able to help so many people and, and has universal claims to it. I mean, it's just quite, quite beautiful. Um, so if people have been listening to the show, Evan, they've connected with your material, what have you been talking about? How, how can they go? Where can they go to get some more information? Sure. <clears throat> so I give basically everything away free and uh, it's on my website which is, of course, www. I'm sure you'll post it, but fworthington forgivenesscom And there's a button right up top that says DIY manuals, and then there are psychoeducational groups, and uh, people can click on this and they can find what they want to find. There, there are ways to deal with couples. There are other workbooks like Promoting Humility, uh, Patience, positivity, um, self-forgiveness, forgiving others. So, um, and all of these, we only post these, making them available if uh, they have got at least one randomized controlled trial that supports their uh, their effectiveness. So all of these award books are free. The only thing on the website that's not free is just the books and my publishers won't let me give those away. <laughs> I would. But uh, anyway, uh, everything else, no cost. Download Word documents. And videos and other resources you have on the website are, are phenomenal. I frequent yes. your website often and I encourage my clients to go to it. And so I will absolutely have a link to it on the show notes and probably have a direct link also to the self-forgiveness workbook since, since that's what we were talking about today. Well, Ev Worthington, it's been a, a delight having you on the show. Final question that I ask all my guests, what gives you hope? What gives me hope? <clears throat> um, you know, in one way, it's uh, pretty obvious. It's that there is a God and I'm not him. And uh, there is a son and uh, he came and will come again. And there's a Holy Spirit that lives uh, in me. And uh, I know, even though I don't always see it, that God is good. And uh, that God has the world in his hands and my life in his hands and my kids and my, you know, wife and, and grandkids. And so, you know, knowing that um, helps me to deal with the things that I can't always see hope from a secular point of view. But I, I have hope because I know the reality that there is something more. Well, amen. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the show. And uh, hopefully you'll be open to coming on future episodes and we can yeah. talk about some hope counseling and other delightful things that you're doing. So God bless you. Ev. Thanks so much for being with me. Yeah. Thanks, Maria. See ya. Alrighty. All right, party peeps. Well, that is the end of this episode. I pray that it was a blessing to you. It might be one of those episodes that you need to listen to a couple more times to really kind of let this material sink in. I think what I think the key to Dr. Worthington's teachings is really found in the virtue of humility, that we have to accept that we're not as good as we would like to think that we are. 
while also recognizing that we're not as bad as we sometimes think that we are. And then having a healthy sense of self is what allows us to be able to receive God's grace in those moments, while at the second time to receive his grace to also to encourage us to be the better versions of ourselves. And so self-forgiveness is crucial on this journey of faith. And so I pray that the practical steps that he has laid out for you today is a blessing and truly helpful for you. Now the show is done, please find me on Facebook or on Instagram at Dr. Marius Acasa. I would love to hear your feedback about the show, any thoughts or questions that you have. Or if you have any other ideas for future episodes, please hit me up on Facebook or Instagram, again, at Dr. Marius Acasa. God bless everybody.